Dotnet Rocks episode 613 with guests Jeff Norris, John Seddon, and Nolan Bushnell. Recorded live at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, Friday, November 12th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Talaric and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Well, uh, that noise you're hearing in the background is the crowd at Ordev 2010. This is Carl Franklin. And Richard Campbell for .NET Rocks. How are you, sir? In Malmo, Sweden, once here, again. Here we are again. A new facility. Actually, it's an old building. Apparently, it was an old slaughterhouse. It looks like a train station or something. Yeah, it's a very cool space. Uh, we've completely overwhelmed the Wi-Fi. Yeah. It's, uh, which is, you know, par for the course for, uh, for a place like this with a, more than 1,000 people here. And we just got done watching an incredible keynote uh, delivered by our first guest, Dr. Jeff Norris from the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And Hi, Jeff, Jeff, you've been on the show before. Yes, actually, I have. We just I figured have. this out in our conversation beforehand right, yeah. that you were one of the uh, folks talking to us from NASA when we were talking about the, uh, the Mars Outreach application. That's right. I remember it well now. Yep. And that was the uh, I Am a Martian show? Yeah. Be a Martian. Oh, yeah. Be a Martian. Yeah, that's yes. the one. BeAMartian.com, I think, uh-huh. or something like that. So um, what a great story you told, a set of stories you told in the keynote. And I'm, uh, the whole time, I'm just wishing that the rest of our listeners were there to see it. Thank so, you. Um, I don't expect the whole thing, you know, uh, but, the, but the, you told some stories about, to illustrate the principles of Agile, you told some historical stories, um, notably about Alexander Graham Bell and his, uh, his struggles. Uh, mm-hmm. Give us a little sure. taste of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a story that, um, well, that I've really grown to love, that when I went and started researching, I didn't know what I was going to find and was just delighted by what I did find. So the first story was about Alexander Graham Bell, who, as we all know, you know was credited with, with the invention of the first commercially sex- successful telephone. And of course, we just know it as telephone. It's a good qualifier that there were other people working on this. It's yeah. absolutely true. There were other people working on it. And there's a great quote, actually, about invention, about uh, how when great ideas are ready to come, that they tend to spring up everywhere, sort of like violets in spring, I believe the expression is. So yeah, there were many people working on the telephone, but what struck me about Alexander Graham Bell's story was just how human, what a real person this individual is. That, right. you know, if you stop at the point that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone um, in 1876, you kind of miss the fact that this was a man who was putting everything on the line to accomplish this amazing feat. There were pressures from his family, um, financial pressures that I've never experienced. He was destitute, poor, struggling yeah. to get by. And um, the love of his life, actually, as right. it turns out, um, was only you know, going to be available to him if he achieved the kind of success that he ultimately did with the telephone. And, and he, he had some pressure from his father, too, who thought he was a bit of a scatterbrain because yeah. he really he wasn't hired to invent the telephone. He was hired to invent the multi-line telegraph. That's right. So, and at the, same, at the same time, he was just passionate about this telephone thing, and they wouldn't hear it. Yeah, so his father, Alexander Melville Bell, I, I learned, um, he had his own invention, which was called visible speech. It was a way to teach deaf people how to speak. And his father very much wanted Alexander to carry forward the invention of his father and sort of kind right. of honor his father's wishes right. um, and, and bring that to the world. 
And Alexander wanted to be wealthy and wanted to raise his social station and so found a funder named Gardner Hubbard who was willing to fund him to build the multiple telegraph, not the telephone, yes. but a, a telegraph that could send multiple messages on one wire, something that was very desired by the telegraphy companies of the day. But yes, uh, he didn't do either of those two in the end. He, he, he made the telephone, which was interesting, I think an interesting lesson to all of us because he showed this remarkable agility and, and vision that gave him the courage to go and do the thing that really no one but himself saw the potential in. In fact, right. there's a fantastic quote from Alexander Graham Bell about this, that in 1876, you have to understand that at this point in history, we didn't even have electric lights. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and he says at this point that the day is coming when telegraph wires will be laid along power, I'm sorry, along um, water pipes and gas lines to everyone's home, and we will converse from our living room with friends around the world without leaving our home, which at the time seemed completely, completely science utterly fiction. obvious today. Right, yes. But yeah. then, yeah, it's totally science fiction. That's impossible. Right, ridiculous. Yeah, people thought it, people thought it was crazy. And this is yeah. before, I mean, the wireless doesn't even exist at this point. There's, there's oh, yeah. no voice communication of any kind. Yes, absolutely face not. face to face. Right, and, and, you know, and the telegraph was the only form of long-distance communication. And, so it's almost, I mean, to me, it almost is like a time traveler came back and told Alexander yeah. Graham Bell, there's going to be a telephone. Here's how it's going to work. Because it's just such vision at that yeah. point in history that it's, it's really awe-inspiring to read about it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this in the keynote as well, which was that uh, he was working under false pretense. He had, there was a book he couldn't read. It was in German. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, one of my favorite stories there, which is that um, he had... He was passionate about experimentation. He was inventing even as a young child. But um, he got a hold of a book by Holtzman, which was, he was a German scientist who did a lot of the early experiments in electricity and sound. And, and it was in German, and Alexander Graham Bell could not read German at the time, but he thought he could sort of piece it out, right? And so right. he looked at the diagrams and, and said, okay, I think I know what this is saying. And he thought that Hemholtz had successfully sent... Um, vowel sounds over a wire. Hmm. Hemholtz had not done that. Oh. <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell thought, if that's possible, then well, maybe I could find a way to send all kinds of speech over the wire. Maybe that would be possible. So a testament to the power of belief. Yes, and so he went off and tried to reproduce an experiment, which in the end had actually not been accomplished, but in doing so, accomplished that and so much more. You know, yeah. created the telephone. He did eventually, by the way, discover his blunder when he got a French translation of the book many years later and realized that he had been experimenting um, and made a lot of progress, actually, um, without realizing that he yeah. was the first. You also talked about risk, the vision, risk, and, yeah. uh, and, the, and the third one was uh, commitment. That's right. So, so, yeah, the example on risk was another uh, a really fun story for me. And it comes from the earlier days of NASA during the Apollo program and the goal to put a human on the moon in, in less than a decade. And it's a time, honestly, that I'm a little bit jealous of the people who worked at yeah. NASA then. Obviously, it was before my time. But what an amazing time, oh, but yeah. probably also a bit of a scary time to try to accomplish that feat. Um, so, yeah, the story was about uh, John C. Hubbard and the fact that he brought to NASA a design for going to the moon that must have seemed just incredibly complex and risky at the time, which was the lunar uh, orbit rendezvous method, which is a four-part spacecraft that includes the command module, the service module, and the two parts of a lunar module that all get docked together, 
and then reconfigured over and over again in space to do different parts of the mission. And when you say reconfigured, actually pulled apart, turned around, and put back together again exactly. in a different direction. Yes, and discarding yeah. pieces, of it he- right. pieces of it here and there. But when you know, the historians look at the Apollo mission, that what must have seemed incredibly risky and mm. complex design um, is credited with making it possible for the for the, the moon mission to succeed. Yeah. And, th- and this was not a plan that Werner von Braun originally liked, right? He was the, I think you use this term, but I know I've read it before, the Battlestar Galactica approach of a right. really vast spacecraft. That's right. Huge. That was all one, did everything. That's right, yeah. There were, well, there were a couple of, of designs. The most popular one initially was the direct ascent method, which was this giant rocket that would launch from Earth, land on the moon, launch back and land on Earth again. Very sort of simplistic uh, approach, but seemed, I'm sure, attractive mm-hmm. as an approach to, at the time. You know, when you're trying to do something that no one's ever done before, it, it probably seems somewhat comfortable to try mm-hmm. to keep things simple. Um, unfortunately, it was a little too simple. Um, there was also like an Earth orbit rendezvous method, but it also required multiple launches of different pieces of the spacecraft, which had to be put together in Earth orbit and, and was a much larger spacecraft, and in the end, also fell apart. I mean, yeah, and interesting, the multiple launch method is a higher risk than ultimately getting everything into one rocket, mm-hmm, which, which they is did. kind of yeah. an all-or-nothing solution. But They did, yeah, and it was important that they did. And mm-hmm. yeah, you mentioned Werner von Braun, and he's a, an inspiring figure in himself and probably deserves his, his own talk, you know, mm-hmm. at least one. And it was remarkable, I think, that though he had initially endorsed other approaches, that he quite publicly and quite um, forcefully threw his support behind this idea that he had not initially supported, mm-hmm. and I think showed uh, vision again, but also a willingness to, to encumber those risks and push forward nonetheless. Wouldn't you say um, one of the marks of a true scientist is the ability to s- transcend your ego and go with what you know is right? It's a, a rare quality, I'm yeah. afraid. Yeah. Yeah. But especially yeah. a guy who had had so much success up to that point. I mean, this yes. was a guy who'd largely defined the U.S. space program. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, he was. And then the ultimate, the greatest mission t- to date to say ends I up was not wrong. being his design. Yeah. Right, yeah, to, and he had to have that willingness, that humbleness, and, and uh, to, to do that, which is remarkable. It's um, yeah. entirely uncommon and something that really should be uh, praised. Do you believe it's, it's uncommon today, even? I think so, yeah. I think, yeah. and to be fair, it's not just because, I mean, yes, some people are egotistical and, and focused on their own plans, but mm-hmm. it's also that when you are in that position of success, and it's something mm-hmm. I talked about in the talk, meaning that you've had your great successes, people look to you as, as the one who innovated and brought us here. Yeah. It can be very hard to say, you know what, I'm going to risk it all again, and I'm going to think about the out-of-the-box idea that I feel is going to succeed. It probably feels a little safer at that point to, to just you know, try to tweak what you have and try Rest to, try to stay to the, 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 the narrow approach. Mm-hmm. And it takes a, I think that's the really rare quality, is the ability to innovate, succeed, and then go and do it again. And mm-hmm. we see it in some companies, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of companies that I think struggle, uh, large companies that struggle to find that future innovation um, on the heels of their early yeah, ones. You've got nothing to lose on the first success, and you've got lots to lose after that. Exactly. Everybody's watching. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I think vision and, uh, the, the, the vision and the risk parts of your talk, I think everybody got right away. It was, there were great compelling stories, but the way you approached commitment surprised me. Me you, too. You sort of backed up. It wasn't just pick a direction and go for it. That's vision, mm-hmm. but uh, a little more restraint. 
Yeah, and that, that's a tough one. And, and I think what I was trying to get at there is that sometimes when I read Agile books or, or see an Agile talk, you know, people talk about being courageous and being you know, almost sort of like a, like a cowboy. Like, I'm going to right. I'm gonna pick that direction. I'm just going to go. And, right. you know, there's no stopping me. No one's going to, you know, I'm not going to look back. I'm just going to go. And that, I think, has an appeal to it. It feels, mm-hmm. you know, very, very strong. But I don't think it's agile. I think that when you do that and you say, I'm just going and I'm not looking back, you become very unagile because yeah. you've committed to this approach. It's rigid. Whatever may lie at the end of the path. Whereas agility would be to try to hold yourself back as long as possible mm. to reserve the, the critical investment that maybe your corporation has to make right. in this area until you can explore as many options as possible and see the one that is the right and one. And you only see that by failing at the other or seeing the failures of the other options. Right. And if you, if you wait a little longer and sort of just go toe deep into several areas, maybe you can, uh, instead of just pondering and looking at the doors, know for certain these 11 doors are not the right yeah. ones. And that one, maybe we're not certain about it, but it's much more likely than it was to be the right one before I searched it all. It's the process of mitigating risk. Mm-hmm. Many times we have those choices. There are obvious stoppers once we just explore a little bit. We go, well, yeah. it's just not going to work. We, you know, mm-hmm. we found a showstopper early on. And you can discard a bunch of these so that you're down to the unlikely few. And that's a great thing about software, I think, which is that it allows that kind of exploration mm-hmm. and something I'm sure your, your, your viewers um, can identify with, which is that we, with software, can and must do that kind of parallel exploration to discover you know, what's not going to work quickly. So you go five steps down with this technology and this approach and then back up and then try another one and try another one and go a little breadth first mm-hmm. rather than going depth first on that one option which you think is the likely one. I can imagine, and I know it's true because I've lived it, it's very difficult when you are in, in the middle of a culture that is so pro one option and everybody around you is constantly uh, extolling the virtues of the methodology or whatever it is that you've decided, the way you've decided to go for somebody to say, hey, hold on a second, maybe we should take a little more time and investigate this, you're going to be the odd man out. You're going to be uh, ostracized for that. Yeah, I think that's true. And so, you know, you see some of these large frameworks, these large uh, technology bases, and what I would love to see is for them to say, you know what, this is great, and we got here because we did something that no one else did, but we can't forget that. And the next step might need to be that again. Right. Mm -hmm not how can we simply make what we have better, which is, of course, a good goal as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But what is the thing that no one is expecting? That, yeah. you know, and, and, and look in that avenue as well. Yeah. And not charge down it, but, but stick your toes in there a little mm-hmm. bit and see how, how it works. And I'm, and I'm thinking about the stories you've told around uh, Bell and, and, uh, and NASA, for that matter, that there was an effort to mitigate risk. That, I mean, ultimately, he started out working on the... Bell started working on the multiple telegraph. Mm-hmm. And this thing this telephone thing kept niggling at him. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, he prosecuted risk on that. And there was some of the letters you were talking about where he was spread amongst too many things. Yes. He, he was trying all of these different things, and it was just testing the doors. Yeah, and I, I think, and his father criticized him for that, said that, you know, you're, you're jumping from theory to theory. You're not right. taking any of them to a practicable purpose, is what he said. Right. And I, I'm sure that's true. And I think what that was was Bell doing what he knew how to do, which was to explore all of the avenues, right. well, many of the avenues, quickly. 
and it was not something that you should be criticized for. Now, of course, I do think it's probably possible to err on the other side and mm -hmm. explore so many avenues sure. that you get nowhere. He jumped on his horse and drove madly off in all directions. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, though, that I can think of a lot of examples of companies that were committed to an old approach, could not move to a new approach. Mm. I can't think of too many, they don't jump to mind at least, of companies that, um, that were trying too many approaches. I'm sure it happens, and of mm -hmm. course if we thought and talked for a while, we'd probably think of a few. But I think that when companies make a mistake in this area, it's a little more often in the overcommitment and holding on to yeah. an old technology. Do well, you think that's the role of research and development in a company to sort of... Should be. Yeah. You know, it's not always, of course. You know, some uh, you know, research and development uh, organizations within companies really just become about how can you find the incremental advance to the technology that we already care about. Right. Yeah. And you know, truly great companies, I think, allow uh, a level of exploration beyond those narrow avenues into you know, potential breakthroughs. I think you still have a challenge when you have come up with something interesting to come back to the production organization and say, this is the thing. There's still a barrier there. Right, and that, that, that's that, that other critical kind of vision that I was talking about in the talk, which is, you know, there's the vision of this is the technology that, you know, will change the world, I can see the future, um, that this is the right way to go. But then there's the vision that that development organization, the business organization, also has to have. So that when someone shows up with this crazy idea, which is by that point, I'm sure, not a polished product right. and, and still got all kinds of hard edges on it and whatnot, to say, wait, wait a minute, you know, this, mm. this could be something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and to use their vision to say, you know what, I know the time and the place and the way that this can come out and change the world. You need both. Well, this not, is Hmm. Bell got the phone to work in his rough stage, and then he was sort of done with it. Yeah, yeah. He, he had a kind of crisis of, it appears, at least from his letters, a crisis of faith there, and you know, he wanted to focus on teaching, and, and you know, I don't know, maybe didn't really understand how to take the next steps. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say, you know, not, not being... Kind of, you know, cr uh, typical developer mind versus business mind, yeah. I think. Yeah, he was never, I think, what, whatever we can say about him, he was never a brilliant businessman, but yeah, he right. did have people who understood that around him, and among them was uh, his wife. So tell us what happened with Western Union. Yeah, well, Western Union is, it, it's a, uh, now, unfortunately, I think a famous story, but um, what happened was is Bell had patented the telephone and actually had gone and presented it at his wife's urging and really, you know, to the credit of his wife, um, at the Centennial Exhibition. It was a, a major, you know, talk of the town uh, invention. Western Union was approached by Bell's investor, who was Gardner Hubbard, and offered the rights to the telephone, patents and all, for the sum of about $100,000 U.S. at the time. Um, so it's about two yep. and a half million dollars U.S. today. And Western Union turned them down, hmm. which is an astonishing decision. We can talk about the vision of seeing what's, what's, what's possible, but when presented with a working article that everyone is talking about, to still turn that down, because Western Union certainly had the resources to purchase that mm, at the sure. time. It's an enormous mm -hmm. company um, already at the time, um, is, is remarkable. Now, it's, it's hard to say um, exactly what William Orton, the president at the time, said, and he is commonly credited with saying, though it's not clear that he actually said this, but his, the quote that's often repeated is, you know, what use does my company have with this electrical toy? 
Right. Yeah. And uh, turned it down. But he did definitely say twenty. Uh, sorry, two years later, just two years later, that he would have considered it now a bargain to purchase the rights to the telephone for the sum of twenty times that which he was originally offered. It was worth much more than that by right. then. You know, and the, the, the Bell Company wasn't selling. You know, the story, think of, of, the story of IBM, you yeah, know, and Microsoft. There was Microsoft. only room for four computers. Yeah, you know, yeah. Who, what, you know, what importance does software have? It's yeah, really right? all about the hardware. You know, yeah, it's, it's, they, they rank right up there together. There's yeah. amazing lack of, of foresight at that clear moment of decision. Do you know, the, he, you think about what Western Union was working on at the time. They were trying to get the multiple telegraph working. That's mm -hmm. what mattered. More simultaneous communications. Mm -hmm. And the device that Bell presented didn't solve that. No, it didn't, right. And it you was could still even, one communication over a set of wires. You could even argue it was slower. I mean, yeah. you know, a very yeah. fast you know, telegraphist could, could send a message faster than you know, a, a person would conversationally conversation. But it had, more it had more appeal to the, to the masses. Though. Well, well, but the magic here was the switching solution, which came later. Yeah, it you did. Know, they, that's what wasn't presented was, oh, we're going to need a switching mm -hmm. solution, which actually, if you had the switching solution, telegraph, multiple telegraph would have been solved as well. Right. Mm. But that's the, funny. The, but the problem Western Union had was they were focused on the one core issue. I'm all about multiple communication. Don't tell me about different kinds of communication. Just multiple communication. And right. It was the obvious you know, next step. I have a telegraph that sends one message. Mm. What if my telegraph could send two messages? Right. No. right. That, you know, it was a, and it was, a, it was not a bad idea. And of course, you know, Western Union is still with us. It's still a successful company. It didn't ultimately have the impact that the Bell Company did, which no. is far more dramatic, far mm. more impressive. Um, but, you know, ultimately we did have multiple messages on one wire, mm -hmm. uh, the telephone as well as, uh, you know, data forms of communication became very important. But, you know, the time and the day was definitely won by the Bell Telephone Company. That was, the, you know, that was the defining force for telecommunications for many years um, because of the telephone. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I got a, a question for you as a sort of a, an aside. The demonstration you did the live demonstration with the uh, the virtual reality, the um, augmented reality toolkit. Did you use the SLAR toolkit, the the Silverlight augmented reality toolkit in your demo? I didn't, but that would have been a, a good choice because I, I tried out a lot of different technologies in the end, mm -hmm. um, trying to get that to work well. Augmented reality is is still kind of you know bleeding it's edge a at the wonky. moment. Yeah, yeah, so. and, and for the, for the listeners here, your demonstration was speaking about the Apollo mission where you had a, a command module, a service module, and the two pieces of the uh, lunar module, and you were able, and the Earth and the Moon, yeah. all on, then it just slips of paper in the view of a camera, and you could move them around so they got bigger and smaller and rotate them and so forth. It was a really impressive it was visualization. Very impressive Thank visualization. you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was fun. I mean, it, yeah, it was sort of so I could sort of play Legos up there with the parts of the spacecraft, because I really wanted a way to, to show like all the ways these things fit together and I don't have, I would like to have, but I don't have like a big Apollo model right. that I could, you know, plug and remove stuff. Plus it would have been kind of hard to travel with because we're here in Sweden. Right, sure. So I thought, well, I can bring a stack of cards pretty easily. And yeah. So I, uh, that's what I ended up doing. But yeah, I, I experimented with a lot of different technologies to try to get that to work. Um, the Silverlight approach would have been interesting, uh, I think a likely one to succeed because it has 3D acceleration mm -hmm, um, yeah. of the graphics. Because you know some of the other approaches I tried, that was a stopping point for me. I, I had poor performance because of a lack of 3D acceleration. Um, the, the technology I ultimately, ultimately ended up using was uh, uh, it's called NIAR Toolkit, which is based on AR Toolkit. Yeah. Um, it may. I'm not sure if SLAR Toolkit may also be based on it AR. It might be. Um, the I know this about the SLAR Toolkit. It was written by Rene Schulte. He also wrote the 3D engine, but I'm not sure that there's acceleration. 
in that 3D engine. Hmm. That's um, a good question. I know there's no 3D acceleration in Silverlight. Built in. So yeah. he had to write his own oh, my library. Okay. Well, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, we might. We all could be wrong here. I could be wrong. <laughs> it's an interesting question. And yeah, I think a model would not have been as visually impressive as the augmented reality was. It ended up on the projection screens well. There's a lot of articulation you could do with that. I think well, and you said it to too yourself that, you know, I, can I stand up here and talk about risk if I don't take one myself? Yeah. So. Right, yeah. And yeah. so it, I mean, it was a risk. I, I got the software working um, last week and actually finished major parts of it on the plane ride. Um, wow. Here, and uh, yes, yeah, so it was a close thing about whether it was going to work at all. It still has bugs in it. <laughs> so the graphics themselves came from your resources at NASA. Actually, those 3D models are available online. If you um, you know search online, you can find a lot of great 3D models of the of the Apollo spacecraft. Some of them on NASA's websites. Some of them are, are made by by hobbyists. Um, mm. So those those are easy to come by. That was the easy part. The getting the the whole stack of rendering and, and tool. Yeah, you know, tag tracking, that was the part that almost I, ruined me. <laughs> I think I might have asked you this on the, on the .NET Rock show long ago, but when you send a, a craft to space, what kind of telecommunication systems are you using? Are we talking 300 baud modems? <laughs> are we talking... So it would be difficult for me to quote off the top of my head the, the uh, bit rate. Um, it's much better than a 300 baud modem, okay. but you know, think of it as sort of like you know, slow DSL, but okay. the problem is, is that it's only on for a short period. So, for instance, the, the Mars rovers, to take any, as an example, um, first of all, we rarely uh, have the rovers communicate directly with Earth because that costs a lot of power, and right. there's not a lot of power on board the rover. In fact, nowadays, that, that's almost never done. Mm -hmm. uh, early on in the mission, we did that just to kind of keep things simple. Most of the communication goes from the rover to an orbiter flying overhead, quite often the Mars Odyssey orbiter, yeah. and then it's relayed back is to Earth. Because it has solar power, solar panels, and it, it has more power, power and storage and things. It also has a lot more communication opportunities yeah. with Earth, so it's, it's uh, orbiting Mars. When it comes around and we point one of our dishes there, mm. then we can bring down the data. And so, first of all, even if you're communicating directly, there's 10 to 20 minutes of round-trip light time lag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, people complain about lag yeah. at 300 yeah. milliseconds. Sorry. You don't know no latency until yeah. you're communicating to another planet. Sorry, right? you yeah. can't bypass the laws Try of physics. Try playing yeah. Halo over 10-minute lag anyway. <laughs> so it's very uh, painful, I would say. You know, we can't joystick, obviously, yep. the rovers because of that. But with the, the relay, it it's even longer yeah. um, latency. So It's a lot of queuing, right, of yeah. uploading yeah. a chunk of data and then it Mm -hmm. And I can see that Odyssey can be in a position to pick up from the rovers that's not in view of Earth at all, and then Absolutely. it has to wait till it is in view of Earth to actually mm -hmm. be able to, to download. That's quite typical. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we are able to do the you know the straight communication, we call it bent pipe. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a pipe that's ping, bent ping. through the you know, so it mm -hmm. goes straight from the rover to the orbiter and then immediately relayed. Um, that's also possible. Absolutely. Uh, and next mission to Mars is uh, launching. Next fall. Is that it, Science Laboratory? Yes, Mars Science Laboratory, it's called right now. Uh, or Curiosity is right. the, the name that was given to it by the, the public. And it's uh, an amazing rover. It's, it's big. Yeah. We, we, I saw some models at uh, PDC 09, and you had mm -hmm. yep. the original Sojourner, the little, little guy. It yeah. was just yeah. like a, the size of a remote control car. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, Opportunity and. Um, Spirit. And yeah. Spirit are, are bigger. Yeah, kind of riding lawnmower yeah, size. Yeah, 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 lawnmower size. And then. MSL is huge. Curiosity yeah, is yeah. It's like truck size. Well, yeah, maybe 
something around between a Mini Cooper and a truck or something. Are you going to bounce it again in a big set of balloons the way you did the other ones? No, actually. Um, I think we would have liked to, uh, to land it that way. Because it works. Yeah, it worked last time. Brilliant and solution, too. Yeah, the, the, the challenge is, is that the, the new rover has so many instruments in it and is so heavy that uh, we can't land it using that method anymore. And so mm. the landing approach that's used now is far more... Uh, I would say exciting. It's a great thing for your viewers to go and look up online because it's a multi-part descent system, including a component that we call the sky crane, where the rover actually ends up dangling from a, a bridle from a rocket-powered levitating platform and Whoa. placed on its wheels, completely exposed on its wheels on the ground. Wow. It's, it's, it's quite a remarkable thing to see. I've seen the video sequence of it, and you know we talk about the complexity of the Apollo lunar approach, yep. this is one of those. It's complicated. There's a bunch Very. of steps and everything has to work perfectly. Yep. There's mm -hmm. a lot of risk there. There's a lot of risk there. And the, the people working on that's not my area, uh, but the people who work in the entry, descent, and landing area at JPL, I think are really f thinking some amazing, you know, brave, courageous. And you can't truly test it because it's a different gravity. Right. Well, right. Yeah. It's like one third Earth gravity. And we're gravity. also sometimes surprised by the thickness of the Mars atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to do that if, if Opportunity and Spirit hadn't gone there and found the safe places to land and all that kind of stuff? Well, um, our Spirit and Opportunity have increased our understanding of what the surface is like dramatically, but the new rover is likely to go to a, a different area on Mars. You can think okay. of what we know of Mars as being these very, very small you know, donuts of, of data on this huge right. planet. I mean, we, we've only explored just a small amount of it, and so we want to go to a new place. So those places, you know, we're kind of starting from square one again. We don't know a lot about them. Um, we have lots of great data from, like, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, mm -hmm. high-resolution images. We know things about, you know, the, the weather a little bit, but we'll, we'll still see surprises. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious as how you know that when you land on a place, it's going to be solid enough and flat enough and... Right, so the process of landing site selection uh, is another area at JPL that I'm not personally involved in, but very exciting. They have workshops with scientists and engineers over the course of years discussing, yeah. you know, starting with a list of dozens, narrowing it down to a list of a few, yeah. even in some cases having a few options available to them after launch, and they can make changes during cruise to aim for one place or another on the way. Wow, that's fantastic. Must be so much fun to get up and go to work every day. It's, uh, it's a job I really enjoy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Jeff Norris, for, uh, for spending this time with us. It was a great keynote. If you can get to Ordev or anywhere else that uh, uh, Dr. Norris is speaking, I s seriously urge you to do that. And thank you very much. Thank you. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight analytics framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem. But what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight analytics framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com Silverlight. 
And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Hi, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Camel from .NET Rocks. We're at Ordev 2010 in Malmo, Sweden, uh, day two of our interviews here. And the sun has just peaked out a little bit. We're pretty far north. Yeah, the we sun are. only just comes up a little bit and then goes back down again. The evil day star is wreaking havoc with the cameras <laughs> right here. It's been a, been a challenge to get going this morning, but we're ready to go. Right. We're sitting with uh, John Seddon uh, uh, this morning. Hi, John. Hi, Carl. Nice uh, to meet you, sir. And you want to kick it off? I think you, you're chomping at the bit to ask oh, John some questions. Absolutely. Well, you did a great keynote this morning. Well, thank you. Really riled the crowd up with, I think, some fairly conversational... Uh, or, uh, so we say controversial opinions. Uh, well, start from the beginning. What is it you do and, uh, and how did you end up here? Well, I only do one thing. Mm-hmm. I help organizations get out of a traditional conventional command and control design mm-hmm. and into a systems design. Okay. Why? Well, because uh, you get massive improvements in service, uh, reductions in costs, uh, and big improvements in morale. Nice. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, maybe. Uh, well, who wouldn't want that? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, so, you know, why isn't everyone doing it? Well, because it's such a fundamental challenge to conventional management beliefs. Right. You know, so most managers believe that, you know, people need to be managed and they need to have targets and we need things like service level agreements and we need functions and we need hierarchy. And all of that is conventional, but it's not true. Okay. So the, the sort of standard, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do today? What are mm. you going to do? We, this is the way we've been talking about Scrum for a while now. So you want to build that into systems. That yeah, I mean, it was Deming who taught me that, you know, we mankind invented management so we can reinvent it. Right. You know, conventional yeah. management actually doesn't work very well. Yeah. Not actually all that efficient. So what's the more efficient model look like? Uh, a systems design, uh, you know, and I only work in service organizations. And okay. essentially what you do, this really isn't complicated, is you design the system against demand. You know, it's like rocket science, is okay. it? You know, isn't it would be a good idea if as a service organization we understood what our customers want for it from us yeah. and we design a system to deliver it. Just to We're deliver just, that. Just to deliver that. That's We're how talking you about the automating, automating business processes and taking our knowledge... <clears throat> putting it in the system so we don't have to think too much? Uh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You, you never want to put knowledge in computers. You know, um, that, that's a kind of a design mistake. It's, it's people that are good uh, at using knowledge to solve problems. You know, computers are good at things like, you know, doing calculations and, you know, that kind of stuff. So you, you mustn't use computers for things that people are good at and you mustn't use people for things that computers are good at. Okay. So, so, you know, the old model of dumb down the front end, put all the brains in the computer, right. that's a big mistake. Yeah, sure is. You know, you, what customers want people they can talk to and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Now, in solving the problems, they might have IT as part of what they have to do, but it subordinates IT. It, you, know, you want the IT controlled by the people, not the other way around. Right. So when we're talking about these systems, what does the typical architecture look like? Uh, well, as I explained to the audience, um, in, a, in a transactional service design, you design against demand, so you understand the demands your customers are making on you, and you're building the expertise at the front end of that system to absorb that variety and solve customers' problems. Mm. In essence, that's what you're designing to do. They, uh, they, people who have these jobs understand the problems they know how to solve and understand what they're not trained for. When they hit, get a problem they're not trained for, they pull help. They keep the problem, pull help. And that increases their rate of learning. Okay. 
maybe we need to set this in a particular scenario and, mm. and show the difference in the, in, the, in the management model. Do you have a favorite sort of business style that, uh, that you describe this uh, change in management style to? What, you mean in, as a, like a case study? A case study. Well, I mean, the case study I used in the, uh, in, in the keynote mm-hmm. uh, was one on housing repairs, you know, where the conventional design is, um, is the tenant rings in and... Um, you know, the tenant who doesn't understand the plumbing right. talks to somebody in the call centre who doesn't understand the plumbing. <laughs> and the person in that call centre decides what the problem is and sends it off to a tradesman mm. who does understand the plumbing. And when he gets into the house, he finds that what they decided was the problem is not the problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Simple. Simple. That's the sort of typical model, right? Yeah. I've got water on my floor. Mm. Come fix it. So it's much better not to try and diagnose the problem between two people who don't understand it. It's right. much, much better to design a system where we don't start the flow of work until we get the tradesman in the property. Now we know what to do. Mm. Uh, right. Um, and then from there, uh, the work will flow clean. It's a kind of a simple idea, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, the faster we understand what the problem is, the better the flow is going to be. Yeah, so why in service organizations do we kind of dumb down the front end, put in a series of steps to stop us really understanding the problem? It's like this with IT help desks. You right. Know? Yeah. You ring an IT help desk and you get someone who doesn't help. Yeah. Their, their job is to write down what you said and pass it to someone else. Right. Yeah, why is yeah. that person there? And, and it might go through three or four people before you get to someone who wears sandals and he actually understands what the problem is. Oh, <laughs> and along the way you're going to repeat your account number four or five times. That's right. Yeah. And, and all the time you're repeating either your account number or your problem, then we're just adding cost. Yeah. I mean, and one frustration. Of, one of the arguments here is that the skilled resource is limited, and so we put less skilled resources in front of them. That's the idea. To try and save that person's time. You know, that's the conventional management model. You see, right. Right. Managers think that their job is all about optimizing their resources, getting right. the most out of their people. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, actually, their job should be to manage the flow. To get yeah. the right people Optimal to the right flow. people as Correct. quickly as possible. Correct, yeah. Right. I mean, I did this years ago um, in one of the big computer companies. Uh, we were helping them redesign their enterprise support, <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is a help desk for big machines, really. Yeah. And the design was, you know, the techies were a long way away from the customer. And there's lots of gates. You've got to prove that you're a customer. And you've got to prove you've got a contract. And then you've got to describe what your problem is and so on and so forth. When they studied the system, the techies themselves, they realized that most of the demand coming in was from people like themselves. Right. And how frustrating it was to talk to a load of people who didn't understand what they were talking about before they got to someone who did. So, of course, they made the decision to pick up the phone. Just go directly yeah. to the... You know, odds um, are the person on the other end of this phone is someone like me anyway. Yeah. So let's yeah. just save time. And, well, and it's but more than odds are because they've actually studied demand so they now they know what's predictably coming in. Right. So, so they made the decision to answer the phone. Uh, and of course, service improved massively. Mm-hmm. Costs fell massively. Revenue rose because now we're talking to people who we know don't have contracts and we can have that conversation, solve their problem, charge them money. Mm. You know, so in that company, it won a prize. Wow, and uh, and what was interesting is you well, know the they crazy had, part is you just simplified the whole thing. It took a whole bunch of steps out. Yep, yep. Um, but, the, but they went. They, they won a prize, so they went up to headquarters to get their prize. They put suits on, right? You know, and then they made a little presentation. They got their prize, and then the panel, of course, senior managers. They said, "How did you get them to do it?" And they said, well, what do you mean, how do you get... Well, how did you get these techies to pick up the phone? See, the senior guys thought they were talking to managers. Right. They were talking to techies in suits. They, they said, no, 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 no they is us. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. That, that would be us. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a kind of, it's an important lesson in change. You know, people love change. Mm -hmm. They don't like to be changed. Right. Oh, yeah. They like to choose. Yeah. Change from within. Yeah. yeah. So is the key to this to actually make the process more visible to the people who are trying to operate it? Give them yeah. an opportunity to modify it? The key is the first step. In, in this kind of change is the people who do the work and their managers mm -hmm. must study the work as a system. So you study customer demand, right. you study the flow, you start learning about the system conditions that we've put in there mm -hmm. that create more cost, that destroy the quality of service. And on the basis of all that knowledge that you build, now you can redesign it. Right. Because you've understood what's happening for customers and what demands there are. So now you can redesign it, confident that you'll improve, but you'll never know by how much. Until you do it. Until you do it's it. Now that's a empirical. spooky thing, you know, because most people say, well, you can't make a change without a plan. Yeah. <laughs> you can't make a change without a deliverable and cost-benefit analysis. That's all bullshit. Yeah. Right. You know, have you ever seen a five-year plan that says we're going to get worse? Yeah. yeah. You understand? So don't bother with planning. The only plan is get knowledge. Once you've got knowledge, now you redesign it. Well, and, 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 the and the new design is obvious based on learning what, what's actually going on. That's correct. It's not obvious at the start, mm -hmm. but once you've got all the knowledge, it becomes obvious. When what? you do a system analysis, do you like to just sit down in the office with a cup of coffee and just watch people and the way they interact first, or do you like to just dive in and learn about you the system? Must, you must study the work. Yeah. So you don't ask people what they do. Yeah, you watch so, you know, them. so if we're doing them with a help desk, you actually listen to the demand, yeah. and then you follow that demand through the system to see how we deal with it. Yeah. And when you've done one, you do another one, and yeah. then you do another one. Because what you're looking for is what is the pattern? Right. Mm -hmm. What do we typically do? It sounds like you do need to do, like in the, in the, the uh, tech support case, evaluating how knowledgeable the customer is is challenging too. I mean, you think you, mm. you need some kind of data collecting mechanism around that actually make that kind of assessment. Yeah, well, not really, because you know, if you've got the right expertise talking to the customer, you can make that judgment very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah a, a technical person is able to identify another technical person That's right. in just a few sentences. Yeah, and a technical person is also able to under, uh, understand people who are completely non-technical, yes. like me. Pretty, yeah, pretty quickly find out, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you. So you have something to say about methodologies that are being used by uh, by development shops and analysis firms in your keynote, for example? Well, what I was teaching today in the keynote is that this is not an IT problem, it's a management problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so when, if, when we, if we're going to change an organization and we're going to make IT part of that change, then the three steps are, you just put the IT on one side. Yeah. You assume your current problems are not your problems. Step one, study the system, get yeah. knowledge. Step two, redesign it without touching the IT. Right. Having improved it, now pull the IT into the new design. Mm. The good news is you get much more from it and you spend less on it. I don't, yeah. This whole thing seems so simple. Why aren't we just doing this? Well, because we're schooled in the other way of thinking. Right. Yeah. We're schooled in conventional, hierarchical... Right. You know. Well, it seems like most designs are made before you have customers and data to collect on. And yeah, then, yeah. And then they yeah. become embedded. Like, yeah, they, I mean, they must be this way. People talk about, you know, we have to do an as-is and a to-be. Right. You know, well, the as-is is never as it really is, and the to-be is just a dream. Right. That uh, never, you never go to. <laughs> yeah. But, but you can spend a lot of money mucking around trying to get there. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it's just simplify. Usually to tell you something you already know. It teaches yeah. you that, you know, Change, change is an emergent property. Mm -hmm. 
if you treat change as being based on knowledge, then it will emerge. The right designs emerge. They don't come on a you know on an architecture right. or a predetermined. They become plan. obvious mm. when yeah, you're paying attention. Self-evident. Mm. Uh, John, where can folks go to learn more about this approach to, to designing systems? Uh, when they go to my website, which mm -hmm. is systemsthinking.co.uk, um, they can read my books. They'll find on the website tons of articles. You know, because my my website is not about selling what we do. My website is is about getting people curious in better ideas. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff to download, read, videos to watch. You know, all that kind Great. of stuff. Excellent. John, thank you very much for talking to us It's today. my pleasure, Carl. Okay. Richard, good to meet you both. Thank you. You too. This is Richard Campbell from .NET Rocks here on the final day of Ordev 2010, and I am the most fortunate person in the world at this moment because I get to interview one of my heroes, Nolan Bushnell. Nolan, it's so nice to meet you in person. My pleasure. I've followed your career for a long time. I am a, a programmer starting back in the 70s, so uh, very familiar with Atari and heck, even Chuck E. Cheese. But uh, you had a great keynote this morning, really talking about future directions. And there was a lot of them, but I think the, one of the ones that really jumped out for me was the education side of things, of evolving the way we teach our children. Well, the teacher-student relationship has always been such a special one, mm -hmm. if it's good. Yes. And, uh, and one of the things that's happening today is kids... Oh, first of all, the brain is very plastic, mm -hmm. and we learn different ways based on what we do, mm -hmm. and we adapt so that we're optimized to certain structures. And right now, because of video games, guilty as charged, yes. uh, the brain plasticity leads to an interactive kind of query, discussion, exploration mindset instead of a sit-still-and-absorb mindset. Yeah, playing video games, you're always trying to discover the next level, the way things go. Just that, that mindset is very normal for the generation of kids that are around the day and even my generation. But what it does is it totally ruins kids' ability to sit still and absorb from a teacher who's droning on. That... that well, it seems so archaic. It, it's totally archaic. I mean, if you really look at information theory, information always needs to have a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. You know, query, response, query, response. There isn't really that in a class of 35 kids and, and one teacher. Well, it's, a, it's a very slow cycle. It's once a week all, my, all the children get tested and they get their feedback the following week. And it's, it's, that's totally wrong. Too slow. It's not just too slow. It's a situation where each child is being taught at one rate. Right. When every child has a different rate of absorption. Mm -hmm. I say half the class is lost, the other half of the class are bored. Right. <laughs> and so by changing that metric around to one of teacher as provider of information to teacher as mentor. So imagine a bunch of kids all having a computer, all with a video conference set up, you know, a, a webcam, mm -hmm. and uh, the teacher is monitoring the whole class, and they can see, based on some recursive software modules, that the kid is struggling. Right. They can intervene. Conversely, a kid can ask for help. 
there. They could see where you know how they're progressing. Right. Do you think the classroom then is essentially dead? Does, yeah. Does everyone just work from home then? No, no, no. No, you you want to have a collective. You you do want to bring learners together. Absolutely. Okay. Because there is when you're not in this classroom kind of curriculum absorption mode, mm-hmm. you really want to have collaborative learning and you want to learn skills such as movie making and some of the things that are much more relevant. I mean, today why isn't every high school doing a South Park episode? (laughs) (laughs) Or, I mean, I actually see a lot of, I still have a a daughter in high school, of one in university, and they make video projects for their classes, they put them on YouTube. Exactly. And that's good stuff. Yeah, it's their favorite part of their curriculum. Why not in economics have have everybody require to graduate to sell products on you on on eBay, sure. Make, I mean, actually, make a transaction, whatever make it may a be. Transaction, write ad copy, mm-hmm. change the ad copy, and see if it gets more efficient. Makes to buy. it different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very interesting to do, especially that sort of entrepreneurial approach of do the end to end part of it of of making a sale. Right. What it actually takes to do. Absolutely. All the way through. But you know, one of the things I want to say is that you can make massive changes to schools tomorrow. And the most important thing is that at least 20% of the teachers should be fired tomorrow. Just 20, be, because we don't need them or because they're ineffective? No, they're, 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 they're toxic. Okay. It's even worse than that. Yeah. The, the, the dirty little secret is that a tremendous amount of the dropout rates are caused by bad teachers. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine being a high school student and forced into a, an abusive, toxic teacher for... Yeah, for your, a semester. For a semester. Yeah, four months. And, and after a while you say, I can't take it anymore. Yeah, why Just, am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And so, so because of the tenure situation, a lot of these really toxic, bad teachers have built up. And uh, all you have to do is fire them. The parents know who they are. Yeah. And the, the principals know who they are. They just need to be let go. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the corollary is true as well, which is that everyone has a teacher in their life that was an inspiration to them. Mrs. Cook for me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Miss Brittany for me. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> wait, 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 mine was third grade. First. Yeah. The, really? one, the one that really pushed me to, to think outside the box, you know, that, that I was already a wacky kid and... Yeah, no, she was all over me. I came back for her retirement, you know. Neat. It's one of those teachers you never lost track of. Mrs. Cook, we had the magic science box in the closet. Ah. And she would assign one student to go in and play with the magic science box and to show an experiment, whether it be optics or what have you. She assigned me electricity. Ah, very nice. And so I wired up electromagnets and lights and that sort of thing and did it. And that night... I went home, I set up a card table in my corner of my room, I went around and got every flashlight and battery and piece of wire <laughs> in the house and started messing around and never looked back. Right. It, that sort of defines your career then. I mean, it, looking... it is. You know, it was really, from then on, I wanted to be an electrical engineer. Yeah. And we, yeah definitely, teachers have an opportunity to set those inspirations exactly. early on. It's just the, the format. Well, we still are essentially teaching the same system 
from the 50s and the 60s, this, when more agrarian society with the summers off and I mean that whole schedule and, and approach seems mad. I, I convinced my daughters to do summer school, not because I always wanted them to to uh, you know, get ahead, but that as long as they were thinking about learning, they lost so much less when they came back to school in September. Yeah, I just, it, it terrifies me how much knowledge can be lost over two months of not learning. Now, the only thing about it, it turns out that free time downtime actually increases your creativity. I can't can't disagree with that. I think it's a format thing as much as anything. Yeah. You've got to. Well, we do this as developers. Yes. You, You've got to walk away. You've got to think differently or, you know, go play a little ping pong, something to, to uh, free up your mind so you can get back to the problem. Yeah, all of a sudden you get into this. <laughs> yeah, you get, well, I call it thrashing. Right. Right, but you also th- see, you know, thrashing as a developer is one thing, and as a guy who, you know, manages developers, I watch for when are my developers thrashing, then, you know, it's time for them to get up and walk around. But you see your kids do it too, struggling over a piece of homework. Oh, yeah. I know, and just to get away from the paper, let's go walk the dog and, and talk about the problem and we'll come back at it a different way. What I would always do is I would make sure that all of my people had several projects mm-hmm. so that when they hit a wall on one. one of them, they could actually go and do something else because I knew they were going to, you know. You weren't going to be productive anyway, so go be productive somewhere else. Right, exactly. That's interesting. It's a good, good approach. And also... I think that it's important to give people an awareness uh, of various things. Like if all of a sudden I were to say, I want you to work on fire hydrants in six months. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, every time you went by a fire hydrant, you would notice it and examine it. And in six months, you'd be a fire hydrant expert. Yeah, you'd have a whole pile of, of empirical knowledge. Just like when you buy a new car, then you start seeing that car, right? Exactly. Once you're aware of something, it, it, it is in your perception far more often. Yeah. Well, we really haven't talked about this in, ter- in context of education yet, but the role that technology plays, it almost seems self-evident now. Absolutely. And, and in fact, one of the things that video games can do is really provide the structure as well as the context. Mm -hmm. Learning sans context isn't nearly as much fun. I like to point out that Pokemon was a massive phenomenon in Japan and the United States. Sure. My son at the time was, I think, 10 when it was really going on. And he knew so many Pokemon characters that if they'd have been done, you know, called Chloropoda Man and Fern Man and Algae Woman, <laughs> that he would have been able to pass freshman biology. Sure. <laughs> you know, just because well, he it, knew it, the characteristics of the, of the characters as well. It's, it's just the creating an applied element around that. I had a conversation this morning with uh, another of the speakers, uh, and we were talking about, as kids, getting into programming early and teaching yourself algebra or learning algebra because you needed it to write the game you were trying to create. Exactly. It, it suddenly well, it meant something ha- to you. Same thing happened to me. If you were a geek in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. you were a ham radio right. operator. Radio was the thing. Radio was the thing. And so in order to get your ham radio licenses, I had to teach myself algebra and a little bit of calculus mm-hmm. at 10 years old. To set up your antenna correctly. Well, no, just to pass the damn test. Oh, right. Okay. The, you know, the and exam. so 
and I look back on it and I thought, boy, talk about hubris teaching myself calculus so I could pass the <laughs> test, you know, at 10. But it, it seemed like normal thing. I, yeah, you, know, you did what you had to do. Did what I had to do. Well, and I think the same thing's going on with kids today. That's just a different set of skills. Yeah. Uh, the interesting part for me is looking at uh, our perception of technology versus their perception of technology. Because we're immigrants. We remember a time before computers and the internet, and they yeah. really don't remember. Right. They know no time. And so, in some ways, we're more passionate about it than they are. Yes. Because we remember we, what it was like we without were immigrants. It. Yes. Yeah. That's, and a good, that's a good metaphor. And they are less pat. They, they take it for granted. They've always yeah. had it. It's not a big deal. And, you, know, part of, you mentioned privacy in part of your keynote. And saying, you know, you got to get over the fact that most of our privacy is gone with this technology. But it's only us old folks that need to get over it. The kids are already over it. Yeah, they, they don't they care. Just, that's long gone. doesn't yeah. mean a thing to them. And that's the difference between an immigrant and a, and a, uh, and a, a uh, fact, native. You know, my son friended me on Facebook. Uh-huh. And I am shocked by what he thinks is okay to put on his <laughs> Facebook page. You know, actually frightened is, is a better metaphor. Well, and you know, I'm, I'm hiring developers, 20-something developers, and it's like, if you want to employ one of them, you basically have to embrace the fact that there's some stuff on their Facebook page that you would never, ever put on your Facebook page. Yeah. Or you're simply not going to hire any of them. Right. You know, that's just the reality of what we're... You know, we're being forced into an, accepting a level of, of privacy uh, as employers just because we need those people. And I'm just really glad that my daughters are all older now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is kind of terrifying, actually. Yeah. So far, so, you know, I've got two daughters. So far, so good. You know, with any luck, they'll get through this Facebook phase without a whole lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, I have five sons and three daughters. Mm -hmm. I've got a big family. No kidding. And, uh, you know, they're all so delightful. And we're all friends, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and it's really great to have this, you know, mass of humanity because... You know, Thanksgiving, a lot of times, we'll end up with 25, 30 people around the table. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's a big, it becomes a big table. And, uh, and significant the, others and what have you. Is, is there ever been a better time to be alive? Just the ability to connect with folks, the, the level of technology we've got to, that facilitates all these things? You, you said it in, in your keynote, we're living in the science fiction dream. Absolutely. Uh, we are living in science fiction. I was fiction. able, you know, the, the, my ability to to book my reservation on the train back tomorrow for the flight while other things are going on. Like, it's just, it's so easy now. Right. A lot of that stuff And it will get easier. I We're, mean, I, I can't envision a life without iPhone anymore. Right. You know, because, you know, the... I used to... I've got this collection, a drawer full of maps. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, of all over the world, because I'd always buy a couple of maps. and, and Wherever I, you went. Wherever I went. And I don't anymore. Yeah. And, it's not and, necessary. Well, except when your phone goes dead. <laughs> and then you're, then you're helped. <laughs> I don't know anybody's phone number anymore. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, they just don't, you don't memorize that stuff anymore. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. And so there's actually got to be some product that is like a real-time emergency backup to your cell phone. Like, what do I do when I'm out in the wilds? I don't know where I am. Uh, the little blue dot is not available to me because my phone's crashed or, or <laughs> dead. You know, all of a sudden, I am really hosed. Yep. 
Yeah, there's got to, there's going to be a product there to back you up on some way. I'm amazed how willing I am to lend a stranded person with a dead phone my phone. Right, just that mutual fear. Oh my God, your phone is broken. Yeah, you need to borrow my phone. You know, right, make your call. Do what you need to do to get back into the world because you're now disconnected. Yeah. Well, you know, I was in Boston before I came here, and my whole slideshow was on my laptop that oh. took a dumper. And so I had, to, I, I had to get a new laptop, get all my stuff transferred over, which, mm -hmm. thank God, it wasn't the hard drive that went. It was a graphics right. card. But, um, you know, it was a thing where I was panic-stricken. I said, oh, boy. And, of course, I hadn't backed it up on a thumb drive or no. anything like that. But, you know. Who would do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nolan, it's been really fun talking to you. Thanks my so much pleasure. for coming out. Good fun. Thank you. Nolan Bush now. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.